uh, a family connection to the area. But uh, is it is it freezing all the time, or were you there during the very short summer? I'm sorry. Was it freezing all the time, or were you there during the very short summer? Oh, I was there on uh, um, I was there on the summer solstice. So I was there for a week, and the sun never set, and it was awkward because we didn't get tired. Well, my wife and I were there, with the, and we were there for a festival with a bunch of people, and you know the blackout curtains didn't work because the sun went straight through them. But I think we slept maybe an hour a night for the entire week. I mean, the first time when we first arrived, we had already been up for about 18 hours, and then we were. Uh, because of the the flight and everything, and then when we got there, we were up for another twenty hours without even getting tired. And we finally looked at our watch, like this is wrong. This, what day is this? This can't be right. Just the, the sun never went down, so we never got tired. Okay. We even asked one of the locals. Um, we went on one of those horse riding trips through the countryside, and we asked one of the the guides. And said, yeah, we've noticed we haven't been tired yet. Do you know is how many sleep do you get a night? And the guide laughed and said, I get about an hour to two hours a night. But in the winter, I sleep 20. That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it all makes up for it in the winter. Apparently. But that must be really, yeah, that must be weird on the human wiring, um, you know. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I, I. I don't know if I can make it on an hour of sleep a day. <laughs> it just, it, I, I actually need my sleep in order to function normally. <laughs> um, uh, go ahead. No, uh, uh, I guess I was going to say, I, I did not like that. I, you know, I don't think I had it, uh, what's called a decent night's sleep in uh, a very long time. I, my, my nights fluctuate dramatically. And I can get, I can do maybe four hours a night for two weeks straight, then sleep a day, and then get eight hours, and then six, and then four again, and then three, and then eight. I don't know what it is. Um, it, it probably, it, I think that as you age and you have a lot of stuff going on in your life, it, you, oh, I've always been this way. Oh, okay. Then, then it's just your chemistry. <laughs> yeah. Just, That's just your just chemistry. Me. You can't do anything about it. <laughs> nope. Um, are you a big reader? Do you have a favorite author? Oh, gosh. <sighs> Am I a big reader? I do not have a lot of time to read. I don't have as much time as I want to. I used to read all the time, but, you know, uh, I have two children with, you know, special needs. I have, I own a business with my wife doing contract uh, art, and I am a writer. So I'm constantly, constantly writing every spare moment I get. So I just don't have time to read. However, when I, you know, I do trust people who send me things, and I think my favorite author right now is Naomi Na uh, Novik. Um, I hope I got her name right. 
uh, she wrote a book called um, Uprooted um, with a uh, uh, with another book in the series called uh, uh, Spinning Silver and it's just it, it spoke to me I mean it's first person story from a from a young woman's point of view who becomes uh, a, a sorceress of a kind in a fantasy world but the storytelling spoke to me it was deep and rich and beautiful and had you know rich characters that were unique it didn't have the same archetypes that so many stories do nowadays um it broke a lot of rules but at the same time it was immensely fulfilling so it that's She's probably my favorite uh, modern author. I've read a couple others that were okay. Um, my name is Lazarus, so obviously Robert Heinlein was a huge influence. <laughs> I know he's, I know he's a bit divisive amongst different fans, but I was I deeply appreciate uh, you know the works that he did, especially from where he was coming from. Some of them don't stand the test of time, but some of them I think do a lot better than modern readers give him credit for um, maybe because they're just still not ready some of his books are still too uh, progressive in some of the things that he was writing about um, that blew my mind at the time that I read them like there's a book called The Puppet Masters which most people think of as a horror novel and it has some sci-fi elements to it but as, and it's the origin of a lot of uh, body horror and uh, and uh, body autonomy horror, where aliens come in and they take over human bodies and force them to do things they don't want to do, and they take over the world. But you know, as exciting and cool as that entire thing was, he has the characters, you know, the main character and the love interest have a scene where they're discussing getting married and what kind of term limit they would have on their marriage contract. That's, to even now, that's not something that people think about or talk about as a concept. I mean, so he had some really uh, incredible ideas that he infused into his stories that just, you know, made them leap off the page far beyond, you know, just being, you know, exciting or entertaining. Yeah, um, I have a couple of Highlands I like. One's I like Job. It's one of the funniest books I've oh, ever read. I love Job. It was so funny. You just cracked me up the entire time. My father read it first. He goes, you got to read this to me and my brother. It's so funny. Um, Job, A Comedy of Justice. Yes. That is such an amazing book. I know. It's just so funny. It's so well written. It's it's ahead of its time. It's actually ahead yes. of this time right now, um, yeah. because it because it makes fun of religion. All religions, every religion is made fun of in it. And I don't know how much it's made fun of, but he definitely turns it on his ear. I mean, I you know as much as people love American gods, I you know I I point to Job first. Yeah, it, it's a great. It's a great book. It's, it, I think it. Like I said, I think that's my favorite of all his books. Mm -hmm. My father introduced us to that when we were young. 
uh, not to joke, but to Heinlein when we were young. Yeah. I know that Heinlein is controversial, and um, what? Oh, I always forget the name of the darn book. Uh, I grok Spock. <laughs> so. Stranger in a Strange Land. Stranger in a Strange Land, thank you. I don't know why I always forget the name of the damn uh, thing. <laughs> the Str Stranger in a Strange Land is probably in the top three novels for me of all time. Yeah. And in my understanding, talking to other people about it, the two things that make it controversial um, are, you know, it's how sex. it... How it the, 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 the sex is part of it and how it relates to the culture. But he did such a brilliant job of it. The other thing is that he does a lot of exposition, a lot of narration, and a lot of delving into you know what it means to be a person. And there are – that actually helped me going into advertising – understanding i mean it was a it's a very very humanist novel mm -hmm. despite the sci-fi and religious aspects to it, it is an extremely a humanist novel mm -hmm. and that understanding that there was actually reasons behind how people behaved and what they did helped me separate and be able to design ad campaigns to frankly manipulate the masses into doing what i was telling them to do mm -hmm. um you know, so I, I, yes, I belong to the evil empire, but he had such brilliant insight into people and who they were and why they did what they did. And some of the people who don't like the book, they don't, you know, they don't believe that he was correct. Um, unfortunately, I, I think that science is, and sociology is kind of supporting almost everything he wrote in there. Well, he was also really big into science and and psychology and oh, yeah. all that. I mean, he wrote nonfiction he a, books about that. So he was uh, he was a uh, he was in the navy um, in their uh, I want to say naval intelligence, but I know that somebody who knows better is going to crack down on it. He was uh, in the back offices of the navies, and he was quite smart. Um, uh, related to, uh, um, you know, helping the development of technology. Someone, somewhere I thought I, at one point he was an engineer, but I don't actually think that's the case. Um, but he absolutely knew what he was talking about mm -hmm. when it came to science and, you know, and how to apply it. Well, um, it's interesting because I think the two smartest science fiction writers ever, sorry, I mean ever, was Heinlein and Asimov. Because the, the just they had these brains that never stopped. I mean, Asimov wrote like not only a lot of fiction, he wrote a lot, a lot of nonfiction. Uh, you know, I mean, those two. I think they're the smartest people in science fiction ever in the history. I I would have a different pair. I mean, I think. Heinlein was up there. I, I think Frank Herbert's probably in my mind uh, is higher than Asimov. I I didn't read a lot of Asimov because the few I got into maybe they weren't good introductions, but they didn't interest me oh, really? for some reason. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and but uh, I I think Mary Shelley can't be uh, discounted at all because of the actual novel Frankenstein is above and beyond 
most uh, science fiction stories are today. I mean, it's it is pure fine art, uh, fine high literature, and the concepts that she delved into were just effing brilliant. <laughs> I never really can. I I think Mary Shelley was brilliant. I think she was uh, way 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 ahead of her time. But I always thought of that as a horror book. Um, no, it's it's science fiction, um, very clearly, uh, um, and I'm not to disagree with you. I'm just saying that's that's how it's actually that's how it's classified in uh, um, like the CIFA and, and a lot of other um, organizations because it's about the story isn't about you know the horrors of becoming a human. It's not about the horrors of creating life. It's you know. What happens if technology gets into the hands of an average man who, who just doesn't really understand what he's doing with it, and he creates life without realizing what that means? And then it's told mostly from the monster's point of view about what has, you know, technology has turned mankind into a god, and I am now its child. What does that mean? And you know what responsibilities do uh, does my creator have to me, and what what honor or what do I owe to my creator? And he's you know he's got a mind of a genius, and he he learns languages quickly, and he studies, and he reads libraries, and he's you know develops into this intellectual to trying to understand what technology has done and because he is the product of it and the story moves on from there it's absolutely not Boris Karloff's you know oh no I I, I didn't think so I've read the book it's just that I was because I always thought well my concept I didn't read other people's opinions of it I just this is mine Um, but was my concept of it was it was uh, he was doing that as a protection against other people and that was the horror of it was that the other people reacting to him just by what he looks like and stuff like that that's the horror of it to me um oh no that's definitely like you know like sci-fi can can in have horror inside it it can have wonder it can have awe it can have action adventure you can have sci-fi without any action adventure um, so I completely under, I completely agree. It has some huge horror aspects to it. Um, you know, I'm just the most the, the pieces that stand out most in my mind for that novel is when he's he's you know climbed underneath this farmhouse and he's run away and he's climbed under this farmhouse and he's living under the floorboards of this farmer family and he's just listening and he spends months under there. You know, going out at night and eating and coming back and just listening and stealing books from them and you know learning all about them and that it seems like that that stand out to me more than the you know the people you know uh, you know hating it and and chasing it away. What do you think of Wells? Like, it's been a long time. I read Wells when I was a child. I think that there were. Uh, I prefer I prefer uh, uh, Jules Verne to Wells, but 
I think Wills was uh, really into something that his the time travel concept of the uh, of the time machine and what he did with it was pretty extreme. I mean, it's kind of interesting how I don't want to say it's the first time travel story, but very very well may be. Uh, it might be the first time travel novel, but he didn't really leave anything to chance. I mean, he went as far back as you possibly could and as far forward as you possibly could mm-hmm. in that story. Mm-hmm. It's not like he it was not traveling within a single lifetime and that's really impressive for the time that he did it and that he used the most advanced scientific knowledge that was available at the time, especially relating to the dinosaurs and to geology and how things moved. So I think he did a great job. I wasn't really keen on the main character, but I, um, but the story itself was, you know, stood the test of time. Yeah, I mean, I think he, I think it was a, a brilliant book. You know what really shocked me? Well, the, my introduction to the uh, the time machine was Rod uh, Rod. Taylor's movie version, um, which I love because, well, first of all, I love Rod Taylor. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, but I was shocked about how short a book it was. It's really a novella. Yeah, yeah today, well, I, I was just at the Rise of Future writing conference, and it was described that, you know, it's, it's only been since like the 1940s that a novel was considered more than 60,000 words. You know, prior to the 40s and 50s, that you know, novels were around 40 to 50 thousand words on average. Um, so it's funny, you know, um, yeah, growing up in the um, growing up in the late 20th century and being handed you know 200, 300, 400 page books, and then suddenly being handed here's a classic one, it's 110 pages. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it, it's you're like, whoa. Yeah, it's just like. Um... I was I was a, I get into these author things where I have to read everything and I was in a Dickens mode and when I got the book The Christmas Carol it was the same kind of shock because the Christ, a Christmas Carol is the shortest book it's shorter than yeah. a time machine it is tiny yeah. yeah it's it's we would call it a novella today what yeah. is it? 80 pages, 86 pages. I think it's like 80 pages. It is short. I mean, anybody want to do a book report? That book. Get that book Mm -hmm. because it's the perfect book. (laughs) It is. It's also a a, perfect example of story construction, too. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. And he also created Christmas. Well, he didn't create Christmas, but he created when people celebrate Christmas. (laughs) <laughs> yep. Yeah, I was. I just learned as a uh, uh, British television show was talking about that there is a um, that Charles Dickens, when he was a child, happened to grow up at a mini ice age in Europe. So, like for eight years in a row, there was snow on Christmas. Prior to that, there was hardly ever any snow for like a hundred years. And after that that eight year period, there was hardly any ever snow hardly ever any snow. But Charles Dickens was a child during that and so when he wrote a Christmas carol, he insists you know, he just all of his memories, childhood memories of a beautiful Christmas was all about snow, so he wrote snow into it. And that, you know, is 
argued to be uh, one of the origins for the cause of a white Christmas. Well, it's also, <laughs> that was the volcano. That That's also the same thing that influenced Mary Shelley. Uh the, it, oh, right, was, it was right, the volcano it, that uh, it darkened the all of Europe. It was, I think, it was in uh, off Italy or Greece. It was one of the super volcanoes, and it it actually darkened all of Europe, and that's why there was a, sort of a mini ice age for several years. People didn't know what was going on. <laughs> Mount Tambora. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in Indonesia, and that's the one that in 1815. Okay, so it's Indonesia. So, but it was it was just yeah, it actually darkened all of Europe for I think it was was it eight years or was it more than that? Well, it, uh, supposedly it it affected as uh, it affected weather in England for eight years, but it could have you know been sh- could have done other things less. Yeah, because it was it, yeah. But that's, like I said, that's also the reason Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Same phenomena. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, okay, my next question is rather obvious. When did you start writing your own books and stories? So I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I always told stories. My father... Uh, both both my parents were autistic, and my father was a very uh, verbal, oral man. He would talk forever about anything and everything. Um, but he didn't talk about fantasy or science fiction. He only told he told stories from his history and other histories. And my mother was a librarian, and so I really, really loved stories. But as a child, no one would ever read anything I wrote. Um, I would be, you know, they would be supportive. Oh, yes, go ahead, write. But when it was, here's something I wrote, will you read it? No one had time. What I did find out is if I drew a picture and I held up in front of somebody, you know, they didn't have time to reject it. They saw it instantly. They had to react. Oh, that's nice. And eventually that led me into art school. But I was telling stories. I was uh, writing comics and I was writing video game scripts and I was writing movie scripts uh, and I went into uh, a college for computer animation because I kind of wanted to do what Pixar was doing back and while I was there uh, in college I took more script writing classes and I learned that the path uh, going through animation and direction uh, uh, being a film director was fraught with a lot of obstacles that I wasn't ready for. So I ended up in advertising. I was still able to tell stories, but the stories had, you know, they were shorter, they had a purpose, and, you know, again, I could get them out and I could get a reaction much more quickly. So, uh, fast, uh, then uh, I still kept telling stories. I played role-playing games uh, like Dungeons and Dragons and and the uh, uh, World of Darkness series. Uh, I was a live action role player in the 90s uh, in New York City. Um, there are some people out there who might still remember me. Uh, I had some interesting experiences that, uh, you know, and uh, a couple of people patting, on my ba- patting me on the back for some epic events. But anyway, 
many, many years later, um, I'm, uh, I've semi-retired from my advertising career. I'm working with my wife. I'm promoting her full-time. She's an absolutely amazing artist and illustrator. And we get in, and I get introduced to the Writers of the Future contest and their book. And I read through this, and I, and I watch the ceremonies, and I think, I might be able to do this. I like my stories better than the ones I'm reading here. And, you know, I think I could write this, you know, well, if I just put my head to it. And my wife thought, that's not on my end. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Um, So I thought I could, I thought I could actually do this. And I talked to my wife and she said, yeah, you could definitely do this. Go ahead and try. But I'm still shy. I wasn't certain if, you know, maybe it was too late for me, maybe I was too old. And I met David Farland, otherwise known as David Wolverton, who is the uh, coordinating judge of it and one of the preeminent uh, writing instructors in the world for specifically for sci-fi fantasy um, and, uh, you know, famous author in his own right. And I kind of sheepishly said, Oh, I might. I think I'd like to start writing. And he said, "Yeah, go for it." It was. He said, "Just write a good story." It was such a simple bit of encouragement, but he treated it as if, "Yeah, there's no reason why you can't." You know, he just kind of wiped away all the obstacles, like as if they didn't exist. He said, "Yeah, don't worry about it. Just go. You can just do it." Um. And so I did. Uh, I dug my nose into the grindstone and I thought, well, I'd already went through art school and I became an artist. I knew how to start a creative career and I knew the amount of attention and focus are required to get good at the skills of putting words on the paper. And, uh, you know, two and a half years later, I was up on stage accepting a first place award for uh, at Writers of the Future for my story. And uh, so, and my career is beginning. Congra- Congratulations! Um, what's the name of your story? The story in that book is called Psychic Poker. It's uh, about as blunt a title as you could get. And even David uh, sort of sort of challenged me on it. He said, "I know where you're going for, but is this title really? You know, is this the best title for it? It's so just." But, you know, on the nose, it's so accurate. And I thought about a bunch of other titles, but none of them captured the, the meaning of it, and some of them, and none of them were memorable enough. I mean, and, and of course, being an advertiser, I looked, and there aren't any other stories named Psychic Poker that I could find that were famous. So, you know, if this story becomes famous, it will be the only one. You know, no one will be <laughs> able to say Psychic Poker without automatically thinking of my story. And could you give me the name, uh, the full name of the book that you're in for Writers of the Future? Oh, yes. Uh, so it's the Writers of the Future Anthology, Volume 38. It's the 38th edition that comes out annually. Um, many of the issues are bestsellers. I'm hoping that mine is going to be. We're promoting it as best as we can. Uh, 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 Pressed. Uh, there's so many amazing 
writers in this, but besides the uh, the eleven other winners, there's also stories by uh, Frank Herbert, uh, who wrote Dune. He's in there. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard has a story in there. Um, uh, Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert have uh, advice to writers and a full article in there. Um, it's an incredible book, and anyone who's interested in sci-fi fantasy uh, at any level will we'll find something in there that they want to read, especially if you want to be a writer, because that you know the advice in there is incredible. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask about the illustration. Were you um, did you have a problem figuring out who did the illustration when you walked into the room where they have the illustration? Or or did you or did you know right away? Well, so uh, they opened up the doors to the to the room to uh, they call it the unveiling, and they have all the illustrations that were done for the stories, and the illustrations were created by winners of the Illustrators of the Future Companion right. competition, and. Well, we get to go in and we walk around and we have to find our piece. Well, with a story like Psychic Poker, there is only one illustration that had poker cards in it. So it was kind of easy. Ah, okay. I was curious. Well, I, I don't know. Well, I thought, well, she could have, or she or he could have been subtle and, um, you know, done something else. So that's why I was asking. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it's kind of funny. Is, uh, uh, the, the illustrator is, was... He was 17 years old, oh. and the fact that he was a winner and the fact that he did such a great job uh, illustrating my story is amazing. Um, he used himself as a model for this character because, you know, being 17, he had limited resources to find, and I think that, you know, despite that, he really was able to uh, convey the the image of what I want people to see when they when they pick up the story. I want them to say, "Oh, this is what the story is about," and then as they read it, you know, they they have a different path. You know, this isn't it, it's not a story about uh, a poker genius at all. But at the same time, there's a little bit of a Doctor Strange feel about it. Cool. And did you enjoy the workshops? Immensely. Absolutely immensely. I mean, you don't get that type of advice just anywhere. Um, that they're, you're in a room with other, for lack of a better word, qualified people. I mean, we've all been selected as winners. Therefore, we all have the same level of dedication to becoming published, either self-publishing or traditional publishing. So we're all there eager to learn, and we've all put in a ton of work over the years to get there. Um, I've taken other courses elsewhere with people, and sometimes you're just in a room with people who's, you know, if you're paying for it, you know, the money could have come from anywhere, and not everyone there is at the same level of, of interest or dedication. So when we're all at the Rise of the Future, when we have, you know, Larry Niven in front of us, right? Mm -hmm. You know, the Larry Niven mm -hmm. or, or, or Rob Sawyer, you know, these just really titans of fiction telling us stories, you know, all of us are, you know, we're taking notes and we're chomping the bit. We're all trying to think of what's the next question because we're never going to get this opportunity really again. Um, 
and they were so kind and they were so uh, the, the the lecturers were so kind and they were so informative and you know it's it's a lifetime it's just a, a once in a lifetime experience I think that's fantastic um it, you know you you don't get those very often we're almost <laughs> we're almost at, and really hardly ever um we're almost at the end. Um, do you have anything uh, that's coming out that you'd like people to know about? And do you have a website? And what's your social media? <laughs> Thank you. Well, uh, first and foremost, um, the only story I have that's uh, coming out right now is the Psychic Poker Inside Writers of the Future, Volume 38. And it's available on Amazon right now. There's a uh, there's a special deal going on for Kindle for the next couple of days. The paperback edition will be out June 28th or 29th. Um, you can still pre-order everything right now. Just earlier this week, I received uh, an email saying that I have I'm going to have my second story published. I sold a story. Um, to an anthology that will come out probably early 2023. And that's extremely exciting because, you know, The Rise of the Future is my first sale ever. So there's always that fresh, that fear of freshman uh, failure, right? You know, yeah. you can do it once, but can you do it again? Exactly. So I've done it. Um, now I'm, you know, chugging away. I'm doing my, getting my third and fourth out there. I have a novel. Uh, that I'm working on. I'm going to be shopping soon. Uh, my website is my name, Lazarus.black. Yes, dot .black is a legitimate uh, suffix. It's not .com or .org or .net. It is Lazarus.black, L-A-Z-A-R-U-S dot B-L-A-C-K. Uh, it pretty much is just a couple images and a link over to my Amazon author page for right now. You know, I don't have a lot published there. I'm on Amazon. I'm sorry, I'm on Facebook um, as uh, Lazarus Black author. Uh, I'm Lazarus author. I'm on Twitter as Lazarus black with the word dot, so Lazarus D O T black. And you know, I'm on buy buymeacoffee.com and a few bunch of. And, a bunch of others. I'm tired. And a few others. Uh, Instagram, of course, but it's not heavily populated. I'm just beginning, so I would love any extra you know, attention or promotion possible, but apparently the attention I'm getting is, is worthwhile because a first place trophy is from the Writers of the Future is, is uh, you know, pretty, pretty impressive, if I do say so myself. And I'm already selling more stories. So, as I said during my acceptance speech, that the award is not a finish line, it's a starting pistol. So, here I go. That's right. Um, well, congratulations. Um, we're at the end. I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to come on my show. Oh, thank you so much, Sherry, for having me. It was a wonderful experience. You're such a great person. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry.
What's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.